So if you're not already there, you can turn there to Matthew 28. Father, thank you for your word again. And the confidence that we can come into your word knowing that these are your words. And they speak to us what you want us to hear. And they reveal you to us. And they reveal life to us. And so, Father, give us ears to hear again, I pray, this morning what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Famous last words. Heard that phrase before? The, the last words of individuals reveal a lot about who they are, their passions, their personality, their, um, what's important to them. And so, kind of out of fun, as we're going to, you can obviously read what we're talking about this morning. I looked at some last words of some individuals, just for fun, that I want us to kind of get thinking about people's last words. Uh, when You're going to know most of these people, some you won't know. When Lady Astor woke briefly during her last illness and found all her family around her bedside, her last words were, am I dying or is this my birthday? <laughs> Jane Austen, that's a name that is familiar to those of you that like to read. Um, a well-known author, when asked by her sister Cassandra if there was anything she wanted as she lay dying, her response was, nothing but death. P.T. Barnum, Barnum and Bailey Circus, he was quite the entrepreneur. His last words when he lay dying were, how were the receipts today at the Madison, Madison Square Garden? <laughs> Those might be my last words. <laughs> um, not the Madison Square Garden, the Coffee Oasis. Henry Ward Beecher, um, a well-known preacher. His last words were, now comes the mystery. I like that. Now comes the mystery. Ludwig van Beethoven. For those of you that aren't very cultured, he was a composer. Um, <laughs> um, his last words, friends applaud, the comedy is finished. Interesting. Humphrey Bogart, actor. I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. <laughs> Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, French emperor. To give, to give you a little background, um, the wife that he divorced, that he loved, and then divorced because she could not bear him a son, was the last word on his lips, her name, Josephine. Um, this is kind of a funny one. Uh, French grammarian, I've never heard of this guy. Dominic Bourse, his last words were, I am about to, or I am going to, Die. Either expression is correct. <laughs> 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 
And uh, just, just a couple of more to uh, give you a little uh, insight in, in, into me. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade, um, my acting debut was playing Julius Caesar. Um, it was my first and last acting attempt. And these are the only words that I spoke in that acting debut. A tu brute, and you tu Brutus, uh, just before he was assassinated. Fortunately, they didn't do that to me. And then one of my favorite actors, because he played one of my favorite movie characters of all time, Errol Flynn, played Robin Hood. His last words were not particularly profound, but he said, I've had a hell of a lot of fun and I've enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> and I'd say that I've enjoyed watching Robin Hood about the 30 times I've watched it also. I've shared before, um, and so some of you are aware, that one of the most privileged occasions that um, I've experienced was to be with my father when he spoke his last words. Um, the last evening of his life before he went into a coma and then died, to hear his heart and passion again expressed in his last words, and his, they were, Dave, please pray for the Lord to heal me so that I can get back to preaching. Um, these words captured my father so well um, he was a, a preacher and um, spent the last two years of his life sitting on a stool pretty much preaching because of his weakness from cancer that eventually took his life um, and yet nevertheless continued preaching uh, for those last two years of his life sitting on a stool because of that passion uh, which were expressed well in his last words. So last words, um, they can be humorous, they can also be very important. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, is as we've looked over the last several weeks at the Messiah, Jesus, in the book of Matthew, uh, we're today coming to the last chapter and his last words, um, just before he returns to heaven. And... Not only will this conclude our study, but, but they're, they're important words because kind of as Daniel shared last week, they kind of, these words like, like Matthew 23 and Matthew 5 were like bookends, the blessings and the cursings. Jesus' last words here in Matthew 28 and his first words to his disciples in Matthew 4 are like bookends in what he has, was calling his followers and what he's calling us as his followers to be and do. You could almost call these last words kind of the job description that he's calling us to as his followers, as his disciples. Um, as a side note, before we look, I, um, you know, I've heard many people say, Often, and, and some of you, I just wish God 
would tell me what he wants me to do. Have you ever wondered that? Or thought, I just, I would just wish I knew God's will, what God wants me to do. Well, the good news is, that's what these words are. <laughs> and so, if, if you've struggled with, I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do, um, listen carefully to Jesus' last words. So, look at Matthew with me. And we're going to kind of just work through these verses and, and talk through them. Um, as we come to the setting in Matthew 16 and 17, uh, verses 16 and 17 in Matthew 28, we see that Jesus has been crucified. He's been in the grave for three days. He's risen. He's been seen by, as we see in, Matthew, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, by over 500 of his followers. Um, he's given them lots of instructions. And now he has arrived at a mountain in Galilee where he has told them to go, their final meeting place. And as they're together, you notice, look at, it's really, look at Matthew 16, it says, the 11 disciples, they, they come to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. And, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, here they are, again, they're, they're standing in his presence, and he's not a ghost. And, and it's, it's also, it, it comes back to them. It's, it's like they, they saw him calm angry storms, and they saw him give sight to the blind, and, and they saw him give to lame people the ability to walk, and they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, and they, and they saw him reveal his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, and then they saw him die. And they like lost all hope. But, but then they heard rumors that he was alive. And in fact, he was. And now they've seen him several times. And they come to this point and, and they worship him. It's like, you are who you said you are. You are the, you are our king. You're the one who came to restore the kingdom. You're our savior. You're our God. And they worship him. But notice it says also some doubted. This is really important. And, and it should be really encouraging as we look at, at Jesus' last words because as, as he's standing before them, it's also got to be really bizarre, right? I mean, what this whirlwind that they've experienced for the last three years has got to be just swirling in their heads. I mean, from the first declaration of John the Baptist as he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to him hanging there on the cross saying, It is finished and everything in between. And here he's standing before them. They've got to be like, it's like they're all worshiping him like in wonder, but they're in the back of their minds, they're still like, it's hard to wrap their minds around it. And some of them are still struggling, even, even as they're worshiping. Notice it says, they all are worshiping, but some are still struggling. And that's, that's probably where some of you are here this morning. I, I mean, to be honest, I've been there a lot of times myself. You know, in the midst of wondering and, and worshiping, there's, there's been many, many times in my life at the same time where even though I'm convinced and committed to who Jesus is, I'm convinced about who he is, 
there's just been struggles in the midst of life with its ugliness and its brokenness and its hurt and its pain and its evilness where I've struggled and says, how can this be? How can this be? And, and is he really who he claims he is? Um, maybe it isn't true. Maybe, maybe it was just something I hoped. Maybe, maybe. And, and, and what's to me really encouraging is Jesus' response. Notice, when they saw him and they worshipped him and some doubted, we come to verse 18 and Jesus doesn't lecture them. You notice that? He doesn't um, rebuke them. Like, how can you, after everything I've done and after everything you've seen and I've risen from the dead, he doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. Just understanding, kind of like it says in Psalm 103, 14, that God knows that we're just dust. <laughs> I mean, he knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. And, and, and in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, it's those of us that he's called to be his followers who recognize that they're weak and, and, and they struggle and, and they're still broken. They don't have everything together. And that's why it should be encouraging for us to come to Jesus' last words because these last words are to, to real people who, are, who, who, who worship him and yet can still struggle and, and can still not have it all together. And, and so if, if you're there, these should be encouraging words as, as Jesus gives us the Great Commission. That's what these words are often called. The Great Commission. What he's commissioning his followers to be. And then the great provision that is going to enable us to do that. So that's what we're going to look at in verses 18 through 20. The Great Commission first. We're going to start at verses 19 and 20. And then we're going to kind of go back to verse 18. The Great Commission. What is... What is Jesus calling us to be? That's the question. What is, what is our job description? Look at verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So first, we're going to look at three things. A what, a who, and a how, okay? Just briefly. What is our calling? And our calling simply, there's only one command in these verses. And, and that might be hard for us to see because it seems like it starts right off with a command, go. But that's not a command in the, in, in the, in, in the scriptures. The command and the only command in these verses is make disciples. That's the What? That is our calling to make disciples. And, and like I said earlier, if you want to flip back to... Whoop, we almost ended there. If we want to flip back to Matthew chapter 4, I want you to see this isn't a new command. This isn't something that Jesus kind of... Kind of it's a, like a, not like a, a last thought that's going through his mind. Oh yeah, just uh, something I forgot to tell you guys just before I'm taken off. It's not that at all. Look at Matthew 4. Verses nine, uh, verse 19. Matthew 4, 19. 
as Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he begins to call individuals alongside of him to follow him, his words are to the point, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. That's how he started, and that's how he's concluding. Make disciples. Make disciples. Their calling, our calling, if I, if I were to summarize what he starts with and what he's ending with, what he means by making disciples is simply this. It's calling people to follow Jesus who will call people to follow Jesus. Who will call people to follow Jesus. Who will call people to follow Jesus. That's, that's the calling. That's it. That's our job to be people who will call people to follow Jesus, who will be people who will call people to follow Jesus, make disciples. In 2 Timothy, Paul was talking to um, Timothy, and listen to what he says. It's his words to Timothy echo Jesus' words because Paul got it. He says, the things... Timothy, you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach other people. You see that, that process? We could call it replication, multiplication. Make disciples. That's the command. That's our calling, our job description. To be people who do what? Call people to follow Jesus. Who will be people who call people to follow Jesus. I think why we don't get it is because often we get mixed up that what we're supposed to do is invite people to come to church. That's not what it says here. It says we're supposed to call people to follow Jesus who will be people who will call people to follow Jesus. Our job isn't to, to say particular words or get people to come to particular things or commit to something. It's to call people to follow Jesus. Right? That's what it's about. So the question, we're, I'm going to have a question after each one of these briefly, and the question is, are you carrying out your calling? Are you making disciples? So who are we supposed to be doing this with? Who are the people that we're calling to follow Jesus? Notice Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. Literally the word is, and I think most of you know this, it's the word people, peoples. It's not just talking about nation groups like Yugoslavia or Canada or the United States. It's talking about people groups. Make disciples, call people to follow Jesus among all peoples. And it's so beautifully illustrated in at the, the last book in the Bible, Revelation. If you want to turn there, Revelation 4.9. But it, it's so clear. Excuse me, Revelation 5.9. But listen to what it says is, 
and we get a glimpse of heaven and, and, and the people around the throne are singing a new song and they're saying in Revelation 5, 9, you are worthy, and it's speaking to Jesus that they're singing praises about, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the who. It's starting with, in, in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it's, it's to all peoples. The question is, that I'd like to ask you at this point, is your calling this big? See, the first calling is, are you carrying out your calling, making disciples? The second calling, is your calling this big? This is a big calling, right? It's starting where you are, in your neighborhood, or at your job, or in your school, or among your family, and then from there, as you call them to follow Jesus, it's that passion that to continue to work out from there to other neighborhoods and, and, and other peoples. You know, it's Judea, Samaria. It's from the city to the to the county, to Samaria, which is to the people that weren't exactly like you, to the despised Samaritans. So it's people from other ethnic groups or other cultures, and then ultimately to the end of the, ultimately to the end of the world. Is your calling that big? Does it include the Basque people that uh, Sheila was sharing about earlier? Man, what a what a wonderful opportunity for us as a community. Uh, as the Bass students come, dozens of them during the summer, to embrace them and call them to Jesus. And as they go back, for them then to be a part of calling their own people to Jesus. Just a little sidelight, you could be praying. I, I fly there January 16th to the 29th to Bass Country and um, have lots of exciting meetings uh, with business people and government officials. Um, to kind of lay the final groundwork for a coffee oasis in Basque Country um, so we can be a part of calling the Basque people to Christ, the only unreached people group in Europe uh, that don't know about Jesus. Um, how big is your calling? Make disciples of all peoples. So how does that happen? This is how it happens, and Jesus lays it out really simply. The command is make disciples, and, and how it happens is in the form of three other words that support that command. If I were to illustrate for you in English how that would happen, uh, how it works out, it would be um, telling you to go to the store and buy me something. I'd say, I'll say please, so it sounds polite. Please go to the store and buy me some bread. But how I want you to do that would be these words. Please go to the store and buy me some bread cheerfully, quickly, and um, freely. And I want you to pay for the bread, okay? <laughs> Those are the supporting words. That's how I want you to buy me the bread. And that's exactly how Jesus tells us our calling here. The first is... In verse 19, it says, therefore, go. In, 
in the original language, it's not a command. It's, as all three of these words are, they're called participles. See, I'm sounding like the French grammarian here, aren't I? To be honest, I learned English grammar by studying Greek. And uh, so participles are ing words, like jumping, hopping, skipping, that kind of thing. And in this context here, make disciples going, baptizing, teaching. Those are the three hows of how we're to call people to follow Jesus. The first is going. Literally, it could mean when you go or as you go or having gone. But what it does, it assumes that we're going. You get that? As Jesus gives us our calling, he's assuming that we're going. And to us, that, that can seem kind of odd because so often we've had the idea that the way we get people to follow Jesus is by getting them to come to us, right? Instead of us going to them. And that's how Jesus starts out. He assumes going. And so where calling people to follow Jesus happens is to be out there where we are. In our neighborhoods. In our schools. In our workplaces. And wherever God calls us from there. It's, it, it's not to happen in a building or, or, or showing up for a meeting. It's to be out there where we are. So the question is, if we're to make disciples as we go, are you out there? Are you? Is it a part of who you are out there? That's our calling, that where we are out there, that's where disciple-making is supposed to be happening, out there. Are you out there fulfilling your calling? The second is baptizing. Notice that Jesus says, therefore, and I'm going to translate it, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does he mean, baptizing? Why, what's so important? It, these are three key aspects to making disciples. Going out there, baptizing. Baptizing. A couple of verses that I think will help us understand Luke. It's a couple but Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 30. Um, and speaking about the Pharisees, and listen to what it says about the Pharisees. It says, the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Put that together. The Pharisees rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John. So what this is saying is that baptism shows acceptance, right? It shows acceptance of God's purpose for your life. One more verse that I think will help. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. One more verse. Acts 8, 12. It says, when they believed, this is some people that Philip talked to. It says, when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, 
they were baptized. Okay, it's kind of the flip of the first verse. The Pharisees rejected God's purpose for them and they refused baptism. Those who believed the good news about Jesus that Philip proclaimed, they believed and they were baptized. So baptism is simply a public affirmation that I believe and that I belong to Jesus, that I'm his. So as we are making disciples and we're calling people to Jesus, the importance of baptism is people committing to that Jesus. If I were to use the phrase, it's like calling people to step over the line. It's not just talking to people about being good people. It's not even just talking to people about Jesus, but it's, it's calling people to step over the line and belong to Jesus, to make him their own, to say, I am his and he's mine. I belong to him, come what may. Sounds like something from Moulin Rouge, didn't it? <laughs> You know, this makes way more sense for people that live in China or North Korea or uh, Nepal or Vietnam. Because for them, they could talk about Jesus all day long if they don't step over the line and get baptized. But for them to step over the line and say, I am his come what may, I belong to him and get baptized, that's when they can be killed. For us, it's so easy to say, yeah, I'm his. But we know if we've stepped over the line or not, don't we? If we say, I am his, I belong to him, my life is his. And that's what we're calling people to do. That's what, that's what discipleship is. It's, it's out there calling people to follow Jesus, to give their lives to him in the same way that we've given our lives to him. My life is him. It's like, it's like the old chorus, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. No turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And that's the decision I made. And that's the calling that we're calling other people to. Not to, yeah, I'll give Jesus a try. But calling people to Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I think as I was studying this, though, this, though the, the last one is the one that personally challenged me the most. And it's the last ING. Going, baptizing, and verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's the third how. In calling people to follow Jesus, it's happening out there. It's got to be out there. That's our calling, compelled to call people to Jesus where we are out there and wherever God would take us. Calling them to a commitment to Jesus as their Savior and their Lord and then teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. You know, so much of my life, um, probably part of the curse of being a preacher, I suppose, um, 
when you spend a lot of time talking to people, it can, we can think, or I can think, and I have thought a, a lot throughout my life that talking is obeying. And it's not. Discipleship isn't about information. It's about obedience. You get that here? It's teaching them to obey. So often, I, I think I've reduced it to where it's just teaching them. Right? It's make disciples as you go, baptizing and teaching them. But it's not just teaching them. It's not just giving people information. But it's calling people to a life. A changed life. A life that is changed and calling other people to a changed life. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. To where we are like individuals as as the believers were described in the book of Acts by the city officials, these people are coming here and they've turned the world upside down. Wouldn't that be wonderful that we'd be such described people? People who have turned Kitsap County upside down, who have turned the state of Washington upside down, who have turned the United States of America upside down because we're calling people to obey Jesus. Not just not just repeat Jesus' words, not just pass on Jesus' information, but people obeying Jesus. The question is, are we calling people to obey Jesus because we're people who are obeying Jesus? Just to, to finish it up, how, how in the world can we do this? Calling people to Jesus in this way. Being this people who are calling people to be this same people. It's the great provision. That's the great commission. It's because of the great provision. And notice there are two things, and, and these things should change our lives if we get them. Look at verse 18. Jesus when he came to his disciples, you know, remember he didn't rebuke them, he didn't lecture them, he just came to remind them of two things as he called them. The first was, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is a great provision. The first is his power, his authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I just want to read you one verse in, in Ephesians, some verses in Ephesians that just remind us of this and, and they're amazing listen Ephesians chapter 1 Paul says I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him as head over the church and that's our provision. All authority in heaven and on earth is Christ's. And we are his. We belong to him. And he's ours. And we're his. And his authority is our authority. And that's our authority. 
to carry out what he has called us to do. Not only his power and his authority, but look at the very last phrase in verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. His presence. Not only his power and his authority, but his presence that wherever we are, whatever we're going through, he's there. And he's ours. And he's with us. And the question is, do we realize whose we are? <laughs> do we realize who we belong to? Do we realize who he is? He's the God of the universe. All authority is his, and he's with us all the time. Do we live in light of that reality? I think that's the starting point. If, if we... If we could get that, if we could live in the light of that reality that we are His and everything is His. All authority is His and He's always with us. That that calling to be calling people to Him would just kind of flow, wouldn't it? So those are Jesus' last words. Important words. But even more important, remember, because they weren't just his last words, they were his first words also. They were the whole reason he called people to follow him. They describe our, our calling. Do they describe your calling? Or have we so subtly slipped into doing our own thing? <laughs> uh, doing what we want to do, living the American dream, just living for comfort, living for what we want, for that Powerball, you know, 500 million or something that, man, would make life what we want it to be. That's not life. Living what he's called us to be. That's our calling. How are we doing? Let's pray. Father, uh, man, what an, what an amazing privilege, what an amazing job description you've given us to, to participate, Jesus, with you in the transformation of, of the world that we live in. To be a part of seeing life change and lives transformed, to be bodies healed and, and minds freed and captives set free and justice restored oh father I pray that you'd open our eyes to Jesus and to the privilege of being his followers and that you would compel us to make disciples to keep the process going for your glory father and for our joy in Jesus name amen